Hello, uh, my name is M. Henry Milks, and I am having a conversation with Eli Oberman for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is Saturday, February 18th, 2017, and this is being recorded at Eli's home in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Hi, Eli. Hi. <laughs> uh, can you tell us your name and, if you don't mind, your age? Sure, yeah. Um, my name is Eli Oberman, and I'm 33. What are your gender pronouns? Uh, I use he and him. How would you describe your gender? Just a nice, easy question. To <laughs> um, it's funny. I mean, I think it's changed a lot over time. Um, I started identifying as trans back in the early 2000s in, uh, in New York, um, in New York City. And uh, that was just a huge revelation for me. It felt like it changed everything. Um, and uh, I started using male pronouns and... Um, and a little bit later uh, went on hormones. And I feel like it took me quite a while to sort of settle into a gender presentation and a gender identity that felt um, that felt right for me. Um, and then and then I feel like even though I still, you know, use the same name that I chose and, and the same pronouns, I feel like my sense of it has changed a lot inter internally as the world has changed. Um, the first like major change for me was which like I think we'll probably get into a little more when we talk about health was that I was I'm a breast cancer survivor um, I know a lot of people say chest cancer um, which I'm totally fine with but I I at this point anyway I still say breast cancer because that feels like what my experience was and it felt like being in a super feminized space all the time when dealing with trans issues and so saying breast cancer actually feels accurate for me in terms of what my experience was with it and how that was alienating um, but as a result I um, I had a mastectomy and I did a year of chemo and I lost all of my hair um, and so whereas I have before I was diagnosed, I had sort of finally settled into, I'd been on hormones for about seven or eight years, and I'd sort of really settled into a gender presentation that I felt good about, and that where I would look at myself in the mirror and sort of recognize myself. And then all of a sudden, I looked completely different um, as a result of the uh, cancer treatment. And so all of a sudden, I went from being this like masculine presenting, but very androgynous, like you know, sort of, I would say, passing at, for male, like, maybe half the time, um, and which felt very accurate and, like, comfortable to me, um, because even though I chose to use male pronouns, I don't really identify as a man. Um, it was always, like, I always felt much more comfortable, sort of, in the spaces in between. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I was like hyper masculinized by my cancer treatment in terms of surgery and in, in terms of like, um, like basically what my hair loss looks like since this is audio is like, it looks like very classic male pattern baldness. And so, um, I began passing like almost all of the time and like present in a masculine way that I would never have chosen for myself. Um, and so that sort of like rattled everything that I had come to. And I feel like it's been a really long process of sort of accepting 
the new way that I look and how that relates to my gender identity and how it's fraught because it was because of illness and trauma and all this stuff. And then the last thing I'll say about that is that since like the, you know, trans community is so much bigger now and there's like so many more young trans people coming out and find defining gender in new ways for themselves. Um, there's so much more, uh, like, uh, awareness about like gender queer and gender non-conforming experience than there was when I was first coming out and like a lot more, um, like third gender pronoun usage. Um, I knew like very few people who would sort of like use like Z and here when I was first coming out. Um, and now there are so many people I know who are using they, and I think like I continue to use he and him because I have been for so long and it's just sort of what I've settled into. But I think that if I was a young person coming out now, I definitely think I would be using third gender pronouns. And I think that the like younger people like coming up and changing the conversation around those things is really valuable. And I think it's really interesting as, you know, it's funny the way queer community works. Like even though 33 isn't that old, I sort of feel like an elder. Um, and that's like bizarre in certain ways, but I, you know, I think there's, um, I, like, I love that all of that's happening, and I think it's interesting as an older person to be thinking about, like, if if I was going through this now, I would have made different choices than I made. And that doesn't, that's not the same thing as regretting the choices that I did make, or that it, it doesn't make me then change now necessarily. You know, like, that I'm still using the pronouns that I chose, at, you know, 15 years ago, um, I, I just, it's like an interesting time shift thing. So, yeah. <laughs> so one of the first conversations that we had, um, you and I had, um, we realized that the gender neutral bathrooms that I am enjoying right now in my experience as part-time faculty at the new school um, are there in part because of you and your um, experience as um, one of the first, if not the first, openly trans students at the new school. Um, when was that? When were you there? Um, I was there from uh, 2000 to 2004. I graduated from Eugene Lang in 2004. Um, and I love that that, that it, you know, made me feel like, oh, like, we're part of this history together and all this stuff. Um, I think I, I first started uh, coming out in, like, 2002 or three. Um, so I would have been, like, a sophomore or a junior at Lang. Um, and I'm the only person that I know of that was um, trans-identified or gender-queer-identified in, in whatever way. Um, and... I, it was, you know, before I was on hormones, um, but I was, you know, more like presenting masculine, uh, and I was sort of experimenting with what bathroom I felt more comfortable in. Um, but so it, the, it started because one of my, uh, I was using the men's room and one of the female faculty members who I, I don't know who it was but a female faculty member saw me using the men's bathroom 
and went to my professor who taught the class that was by that bathroom like I was going to the bathroom before class and so um, she saw me going to class uh, and so he pulled me aside after class and was like I totally don't know how to handle this but I need to talk to you about this like this you know a, a female faculty member came and complained that you were using the men's bathroom um, which is like pretty atypical you know uh, I feel like for for women to be policing the men's bathroom it's usually not how it goes in my experience but that is what happened um, and he was like I like I feel he felt so uncomfortable like prying into something that was and, and this is like someone who I really trust and adore politically um, uh, a cis male faculty member but who like was so great um, but really didn't have experience with trans issues like no one that I knew did and so uh, he was like can you I, like what should I say to her like what I don't know what to do um, and I was so embarrassed and freaked out um, but I was you know I said to him like and he and he said I'm like I'm not trying to ask you to use the women's bathroom but like can you explain to me why you're not you know and I said that I was identifying as as trans um but I was like you know the main point is that there isn't a bathroom for me like I get you know harassed in women's bathrooms all the time like it's not like that's a safe choice and I'm choosing to do this other thing either because of my identity or because I'm trying to make a political point or I'm trying to like rock the boat or whatever like this isn't I'm not just trying to like be this isn't for fun you know like this isn't um like that's not a safe place for me either and in fact men's bathrooms tend to be safer places for me in terms of harassment than women's bathrooms um I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot to say about why all of the, like, fervor around bathroom laws that's happening at this point in time, um, you know, always focuses on trans women and in women's bathrooms. Um, and I think that because of violence towards women and because of patriarchy and because of misogyny, the sense of like frailty and danger in women's space is much more intense than in men's space like um you know men in my experience in men's bathrooms is that mostly they're all trying so hard to show that they're not looking at each other's dicks that no one really looks at anybody and they're not afraid for their physical safety men are not afraid for their physical safety in a gendered way in a restroom and so the while even if I wasn't passing the like culture towards just ignoring me as and towards ignoring each other at all costs and each other's bodies at all costs in that space because of like the like frailty of masculinity and because of like homophobia you know and not wanting to appear to be looking at another man in like that space um meant that mostly even like long before I was passing at all, it was a much safer space to be in than women's restrooms and uh, gender nonconforming um, and trans assigned female people 
have so much like it's it's so common to be harassed in women's bathrooms and so the men's bathroom was always a safer space for me and so anyway I I explained this to my professor I was like I can't just go back like you know and and it was hard because I was in process too I wasn't like this is how I identify this is what I want like you know whatever it was like I'm trying to figure this out too because there isn't a safe space for me um and I don't remember all of exactly what happened, but he did go back and talk to that faculty member and I never had any trouble again. I did mostly like more and more use men's bathrooms um, and no one else that I know of ever complained about it. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, there was certainly never, w while I was there, there was never a, like all gender bathroom um, or any activism around having an all-gender bathroom because I was the only person um, that I knew of. So the fact that so many years later that has happened and other people are benefiting from that makes me very happy. Yeah, um, yeah I, as you said, it seems like uh, so much has happened, you know, in the past however many years since you um, came into transness and came into trans identity. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I am older than you, but I'm much newer to it than you are. And so I do think of you as like an uncle or, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the older generation. Um, what was it like coming into transness in New York at that time? What was it like in terms of support and community? I feel like it was such a particular time um, that is often forgotten. Um, this is like, yeah, 2002, 2003, 2004, um, because there was already sort of an, an enormous increase and masculine visibility on the West Coast, especially in San Francisco, but in New York there really wasn't. Um, I knew uh, one other uh, transmasculine identified person um, at the time. And so it was really like, it, I, like I really did feel very alone. And then very quickly the same thing happened in New York um, in terms of like an explosion of, of visibility and of like trans masculine people coming out and identifying and um, just feeling like there was an enormous presence. So it happened very quickly. Um, but in that sort of small amount of time before that, it was like a total void wasteland, you know. Where would you um, put that moment of explosion in terms of year? It's hard to remember exactly. Um, if I kept journals, which I don't, I could go back and look, but I would say probably like 2004, 2005, um, if I'm guessing, but don't, don't hold me to that. Um, but yeah, so it's like, it's, it feels, and, and like you said, so much has happened since then, it feels so easy to forget that moment in time. Um, and it sounds like hilarious to me now to like think back on being one of only two trans people that I knew in, in New York City. Like, it's, you know, it's bizarre. Um, but, but yeah, so one of the things, um, one of the things that I, when I decided to, um, to start hormone replacement therapy, 
um, I was 17. I, no, no, no. I was older than that. I was, I was like 19 or 20, but the trans protocols at the time were that if you were under 21, you were considered youth. Um, and so you had to have a psychological evaluation and you had to go to some sort of like group uh, counseling or, or um, support group or something. So yeah, I think I was probably 19 or 20. Um, and so to, to start therapy, hormone replacement therapy, I did do that. I went to um, a trans masculine support group at the LGBT Center in New York. Um, it was led by a trans masculine um, therapist and there were maybe 10 other people in the group um, in various stages of identification or transition. Um, and while it was such a complicated thing, I, while um, I am grateful that a space like that existed for people who wanted it, um, I was also resentful of going because it was something that I had to do um, to get the care that I needed and wanted. Um, so it wasn't voluntary, which, you know, and like, let's remember that I was like a petulant teenager at the time. Um, and, and at the same time, I was really hopeful, you know, and I was excited about going a little bit. And um, for me, trans identity was always like very, it wasn't just about like, I identify this way. Like for me, it was inextricably linked to um, anti-oppression politics to being a feminist, um, to anti-racist politics, to, you know, like, awareness of classism. Like, it was, it was very much linked to those things, and I was young and, like, radicalized and politicized and super idealistic and bright-eyed, and I was, like, for me, it was, it was about personal identification, but it also was, like, oh my god, this changes everything. Like, if gender can be deconstructed in this way, like, this is a, like, this changes the world, you know? Like, I felt like it changed the world inside of me, but it also changed my sense of of what was possible in the world. And I was like, oh my God, like, we're, like, we're gonna, like, our existence brings down the patriarchy. Like, this is, like, we're doing this, you know? So what happened when I went to this support group was that it was, like, not at all a politicized space, um, which... I'm not saying that that should, people should have a space to go. I'm not saying they should have enforced a certain politics in order for people to come in and, and talk and, and have the connections that they needed. But for me, it was like such a huge, uh, like a devastating disappointment because meeting these other trans masculine people who were the first other trans people that I was meeting whose politics were so different than mine. Um, and, you know, I think that I, in a sense, felt like, or I, I, what I thought, when, you know, because of how, like, mind-blowing this, like, was politically and personally, um, like, I was like, oh, my God, like, these are my people. Like, people who understand this, who understand, like, that something as, like, completely ingrained as gender is transient and is non-essential, like non-essentializing and um, 
is fluid and like people who understand that like are going to be my people and when I walked into that room and learned very quickly that those weren't my people like it was totally devastating and the, the main incident that I that I remember um I remember well I, I mean I remember being annoyed with how like trivial a lot of it seemed like how how self-centered a lot of it seemed um how much people wanted to talk about like every detail of like every new hair that was grown or like what clothes they were wearing or like you know what like what razor they were using or you know what and I was just like this is what we're talking about like oh god you know um but so I remember you know the facilitator you know at the end of one um at the end of one session you know asking us to brainstorm like topics for future sessions for future conversations you know and people were saying things like I want to like talk about learning how to shave and you know whatever and I was like okay okay like I you know like okay this is not what I want to talk about but like I get that this needs to be a safe space for people to ask questions that feel scary to that like okay okay and I was like trying so hard to stay with it and then this one person who was um definitely significantly older than me um said you know that feeling when you're in a room of all women and you're all women together and everyone's just talking and doing their thing or being and a man walks in the room and the entire energy of the room changes and is focused towards him and like just by the fact of being a man he has completely like centered the space around him where for a moment before it wasn't i want to learn how to do that and like as a as a feminist i was so like i was horrified but i was also like amazed at the like it it was such a good description of what like totally unconscious male privilege does you know like not just at like you know like at an at an at an energetic level you know and um and i i blurted out i know exactly what you're talking about and i never want to make anyone feel like that in my whole life and there was dead silence and it was just like this this moment for me of being like oh okay like some of these people do just want male privilege and it's not just about like your own identity it is about wanting power and privilege and or at least at the very least the inability to separate that from a male identity to separate that power and privilege from a male identity and um it was like i remember that moment like as though it were the deepest betrayal you know like even though i barely knew these people um and 
And I've had a lot of issues over the years about like misogyny in trans masculine community. And there, there have been times where I've just felt like I wanted nothing to do with it, you know, because of that. Um, but that moment really just like crystallized that for me. Um, yeah. Are there other um, experiences during that time period that seem um, uh, like they would be valuable to share? Um, oh, well, I actually, I do want to say one other thing about that moment, mm -hmm. about that experience, was part of what was so devastating about it. So I was raised in a feminist household. My mom is mm -hmm. a second-wave feminist um, who referred to our family as her permanent consciousness-raising group, jokingly. <laughs> um, and part of what was like a, another layer of the horror of hearing that was that I was of course engaged with these like engaged in these awful 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 conversations with my family um who were freaking out rejecting me like hurting me in ways that I like previously had not imagined and the like emotional anguish of like dealing with that with my family and specifically with my mother so much of her concern was about feminism and you know saying things to me like you know you just like you hate women you know you're doing this because you hate women because you hate me because you think women are weak because you're a misogynist because you want male privilege because you want power like are you just gonna like walk into a sports bar and start like catcalling women with a bunch of dudes like this like the like totally inexperienced uneducated like feminist terror about what it means for all of these assigned female people to be saying that they identify as male or presenting in more masculine ways there there was like a fever pitch of that you know and this is my like feminist mother but we're talking about like in the queer community too, like that's the other thing about that moment in time was that the transphobia within the queer community was so intense. Like, so there was not, it, it wasn't just straight people being transphobic. It was like the fear of losing everything, um, including being able to be in queer community. And so part of the awful thing about hearing this trans guy express this like deep misogyny and desire for power within patriarchy was like, I'm hearing my mom, you know, and I'm like, this is exactly what she's afraid of and what she's telling me are the reasons why she's disowning me or trying to have me committed to a mental institution or, like, all of the shit that they pulled on me, you know, like, and, like, oh, my God, are they right? Or, like, oh, my God, I've been telling her, like, that's not true. I'm a feminist. Like, it doesn't help feminism for me to, like, be a way that doesn't feel right to me and that makes me horribly depressed and suicidal and like I you know the best way for me to like fight like fight patriarchy is to be true to myself and to be real and like I'm never not going to be a feminist and I'm not you know it's like I'm like I've been fighting this line of reasoning with the people like closest to me and telling them that it's not true <laughs> and here like it it is true for some people and so it like yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk more about your uh, family and your upbringing. Um, where are you from? Um, I was born on Long Island, but um, 
we, my family moved to Virginia when I was, uh, I had just turned five. Um, and so I really identify as being from, from Virginia and from the South, and I don't remember being in, on Long Island at all. So we'll just say Virginia. And uh, Charlottesville, right? Yeah, Charlottesville, Virginia. It's central Virginia. It's about two hours south of D.C., about an hour west and south of, of Richmond. And to people who say it's not the South, I will just say, have you been? <laughs> um, yeah, as a fellow of Virginia. Yes, we <laughs> grow up very close to each other, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, how old were you when you first addressed um, trans-related stuff with your family? I mean, I, I was very close to my mother growing up um, and very close to... Um, my older sibling, um, who is also trans, um, and so we had like very different ways and paths of coming um, to that uh, in our lives. But so I was, I was very open with my family very early on because that was, you know, I was in college, but I, you know, can't say that I was an adult yet. Um, I was out of their house, but I was still really close to them. Um, and at least with my mom, it felt very natural for me to talk to her about everything in my life. And that was the kind of close relationship that we had. Um, so yeah, I really involved them, if albeit very poorly, uh, from the very beginning. Why do you say poorly? Um, I mean, I think, you know, they were transphobic and horrible and said many horrible things to me that I have every right to still be upset about but I also like I really was a teenager and you know I wish I wish that I could have approached them with the openness and compassion that I think I would be able to if I was coming out to them now um there was no there was no room for in my mind and my heart and my total dogmatic like teenage whatever for them to be having a hard time with it you know like I just I was like this is how it is this is who I am if like you can't change and deal immediately like what's wrong with you you know like I just and like yes of course we wish people just understood right away but like I just would do things very differently now <laughs> It doesn't excuse what they did, like, but I, it's not realistic to expect people to accept something that, that, like, shakes the fabric of their understanding of what it means to be a person in our culture overnight. Like, that's not a realistic expectation, <laughs> nor is it particularly kind. I can see, I mean, how it would be like a coping mechanism or defense, you know defensive move. In any case, um, and you had already uh, had a conversation with them about queerness, is yeah. that correct? Yeah. And, and they had reacted more positively to, to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Are you interested in talking about your relationship with your sibling? who's also trans, who came out yeah. as trans much later. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, Miller is four years older than me, and in a lot of ways 
had a, had a much, much more, like, you know, quote-unquote normal trans story. Like, he was always, like, always very masculine presenting, like, you know, was good at sports, was, you, you know, just, like, was a tomboy, was all of those things, um, was much, much more masculine presenting than I was, um, was tough, was, you know, all of these things, and I was, like, sensitive and, like, artsy and terrible at sports and, like, you know, when when I came out, my father actually said to me, you know, you don't have to do this just to be more like Miller. Like, it was, like, the fact that if one of their children was going to be doing this, it was me, was, like, a total shock. It was, you know, so, but, um, so... Miller did identify as trans for a very long time, but in a much, um, but was still using uh, she and her, and was really reactive to the idea of of hormones or surgery. Um, really out of uh, a stubbornness that I really admire, that was based a lot around like there's nothing fucking wrong with me, like, there's something wrong with the world, like, why should I have to change my body to be more acceptable to people, you know, um, and in the end, you know, and, and he's also a a feminist, we're very close still now, um, and so was having, and he actually, like, going back to what we were talking about, about the, like, bi-coastal stuff, he was living in San Francisco at the time, and so he was seeing this, like, giant wave of, like trans men whereas I was completely alone and so that was like the our perspectives on that were really different and so you know he like when we were struggling during that time when I was coming out you know he was saying like I'm surrounded by people who say that they're feminists who say that their you know experience as as like being raised as female is extremely important to them and that they're never going to forget it and they're never going to stop fighting for it and then they go on hormones and it's like they never want to fucking talk about it you know and I was like what are you talking about like this is me like I'm never going to do that I don't know who you're talking to but like I'm all alone over here and like I'm not going to do that you know and you know years later he apologized to me and was like I should have known you were the only person I know who wouldn't be like that but um but yeah, so he actually, um, even though he identified as trans for a long time in terms of um, like using uh, using he and him and, and going on hormones actually did that much, much later than me. And so our, our journeys around that were just really different. And I think, um, I think it was really difficult for us in our family because I think it's hard enough for parents to accept like one one child or one version of transness that their child is presenting them with but to ask them to have a nuanced enough understanding of transness that they have two very differently trans children was definitely beyond their capacity to understand and so it meant that both of us were getting lost in certain ways I think um, when I started when I came out to them as trans, they actually began 
feminizing him in all of these ways that they hadn't previously in contrast to the decisions that I've made. Because it was sort of like, well, if Eli can be Eli and be on hormones and use he and him, the fact that Miller's not choosing to is a choice of toward femininity and towards female identification, which wasn't his experience at all. But it like, so it actually made things more uncomfortable for him and his experience of gender in our family. And it also like masculinized me in ways that were never how I identified, you know, and their understanding of, I, I mean, in my mother's struggle to understand, like, you know, I told you, I said the thing about how in, she, like, imagined this, like, dystopia of, like, me at a sports bar with dudes, like, burrowing down, and at the same time would say things I know. So comical. Right, I know. And it, but in the same breath would be like, I can't see anything masculine about you. I can't see how anyone would ever think that you were a man. Like, you know, and um, so the contradiction of those things like in her in her like struggle to understand um you know and so I would like because the kind of masculinity that I have which is about being like a queer trans person which is about like being Jewish and like Jewish and like ethnic masculinity um you know it's not this like straight male imaginary of whatever it was that she was struggling with you know and at the time we had a like very very like like flaming gay man friend that she knew you know and I was like and so when she was like I think that it it I said to her do you really think that I'm less masculine than that person but, and yet, you don't question his masculinity at all. And why is that? You know, like, and I think she really didn't know what to say because it, of course, brought to the table the way that homophobia was informing your understanding of, of gender, you know? And so, you know, a anyway, because my, like, gender presentation is so much more feminine and queer than Miller's was, um, it was just very, <laughs> they were confusing times for everyone involved. Yeah, that must have been, um, a struggle. And, um, I can't imagine going through all that with so little community. Um, How long have you been playing music? Um, I have been playing music since I was four. Mm -hmm. um, my father took me to go see a performance of Fiddler, uh, not Fiddler on the Roof, sorry, I do love Fiddler on the Roof, of, um, of Peter and the Wolf on Long Island when I was four. And I came home and asked if I could play the violin, which was represents the Peter, the main character in Peter and the Wolf. Um, and he, I don't remember this, but this is the story I've been told. Um, so I, I begged to play violin and he started weeping, um, because unbeknownst to me, um, my, his whole side of the family were violinists. Um, 
of a cellist or two thrown in for good measure, but mostly violinists. Um, and the story goes that my great-great-uncle Aaron played his violin in bars across Russia to pay for the boat for them to come to the United States. Um, and then they, I, uh, he was he was the first chair of the Philadelphia um, Orchestra for a long time. His brother was first chair cellist at, in the Philadelphia Orchestra. His other brother was second violinist in the Budapest String Quartet. Um, my father was also a musician. He was a guitarist. Both of my grandfathers played. Um, and so I didn't know any of this, so it was like this like coming into family tradition in a way that was super emotional for him that I didn't even know. Um, but so, yeah, so I, I played uh, classical violin from when I was four till probably like 12. Um, and I and then I quit um, mostly because the both, I mean, I think it's really common for teenagers to quit playing classical music. Um, it, you know, I was listening to Nirvana and like Liz Fair and like I, this, I was like, what is this stodgy old shit? Um, I love classical music now, but, uh, and also the community was just like so brutal. Um, the community of classical music, oh. like it's so, so competitive. Um, the like conductor of the youth orchestra that I was a part of just used these like total humiliation tactics to like shame people in front of each other um there's like a saying that like if you're a violinist and you meet another violinist don't shake their hand because like they would break your fingers like you know it just like you know i loved music and it was about joy and it was about connection to like myself and to others and a sense of the divine and like this like the cutthroat environment of classical music um which i think is true for lots of classical musicians but i do think violin is like particularly brutal um just like had slowly sucked all of the joy out of it for me um so i quit um and but i but it was a huge loss for me like i like vividly remember having the conversation with my, cause I just like stopped practicing cause it was, I hated it. And you know, my parents like confronted me about it and they were like, we're not gonna keep paying for you to take lessons if you're not gonna play. Like if you don't want to do this, don't do it. Um, and so I agreed, we agreed together that I would stop taking lessons and that I would quit. And I remember like closing my violin case and pushing it under my bed and just like sobbing, you know, cause I didn't, I did actually love this thing. And yet I like had to admit that I wasn't doing it. And it was very, confusing um so I didn't play again I played one more time a friend of mine uh died of cancer and his parents asked me to play something at his memorial which I did do when I was like 13 or 14 I think um but other than that I like never picked it up again and then I met my best friend Louisa at the new school, uh, at Eugene Lang, um, Louisa, who is also now married to Miller, <laughs> my <laughs> brother, um, and they just had a adorable baby uh, two months ago. Um, but so I met Louisa, and she was in a punk band with two other uh, two other women who went to. They had all um, 
they had all gone to high school together in Ithaca, New York, and moved, and been in a band together there, and then all went to Lang and were still in a band. And so I ended up living with, uh, with Louisa and, and her girlfriend at the time who was in the band, and we were talking about music, and like, I, like having been in Virginia, like completely missed Riot Girl. I had no idea that that happened. Um, I was like listening to Tori Amos and the Indigo Girls and uh, Ani and such. Uh, and uh, I was like, what is punk? What is Riot Girl? What the fuck are you telling me? Like, this is, you're blowing my mind right now, you know? And she was like, yeah, okay, we're gonna catch you up. Um, so then, you know, and they would have band practice in our basement. And one day, you know, she was like, I want you, do like, do you wanna maybe like try playing with us? And we had talked about singing, she's the lead singer, and I was like, oh, like, like, do you want me to like sing harmony, like sing backup and stuff? Like, that sounds so fun, I would love to do that. And she was like, well, I guess, but no, like, I, I want you to play violin. And I was like, well, I don't play violin anymore, and I haven't for a really long time. And she just looked at me and said, yes, you do. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't have my violin in New York, it was still under the bed in Virginia, and she was like, okay, well, next time you go, you go home, just like bring your violin back. And I, so the next time I went home, I got my violin out. I very dramatically drove up to the top of a mountain um, in the Blue Ridge. Uh, and in the middle of the night to play. Um, because yes, I was a drama queen, but also like the like deeply ingrained perfectionism of of classical music and of of violin especially like I I could only imagine how bad it was going to sound and what how like deeply uncomfortable that would be and the loss of to have like so finely honed a skill over like so many years of diligent practice and then not be able to do it is like just like in your gut like just so uncomfortable to be bad at something that you were so good at and that you worked so hard for and i was so so ashamed at like what i knew was gonna come out and so i was like i can only do this if i literally like if i know that not a single person could possibly be hearing me right now and i just like played a d like just an open string D for like a, what felt like an eternity and it sounded so bad and I was like crying and I was like you have to do this like you just met somebody who like is worth trying to do this for and who is like bringing a way of this possibly being a part of your life back into your life and like you are a fucking coward if you don't do this like you have to just do it and sound so bad and just like face it and I did and it was but it was like I swear to god like playing that D on that mountain is like one of the hardest things I've ever done like it was so painful um but yeah so I uh she and I I started playing with them and that band broke up and she and I started another band called the Shondas but we're still in and music is just like playing music is like makes me happier than anything else in the world and it's like totally my connection to myself and to my sense of the divine or god or spirituality or whatever you want to call it and a way of like non-verbally connecting to other people um 
and also it's just like total straight up mental health survival <laughs> like if we're not like if we're not playing it takes like two weeks before I'm like why am I here <laughs> like what am I doing I should die um but it also I I think just like to tie it back to like transness um I think that so much of my experience of transness as a child and then also of coming out in that particular moment like particular weird super brief moment in time in New York was of this experience of like constantly falling through the cracks of language you know that there were no words there were no words to explain the experience that I was having in any way you know in terms of my body in terms of gender in terms of how I was relating to other people like how the ways that everything felt wrong and there was no there was no way to express it like I just literally didn't have words for anything that I felt or who I was and being like growing up in a like hyper verbal hyper communication oriented household being Jewish like if we're not talking what are we even doing um like and like feminism and like the personal is political and like the idea of not being able to speak like your truth and your experience and put it like put words to it was like probably half the dysphoria you know like more than like oh i'm in the wrong body or whatever which i never felt exactly um the the true dysphoria was not being able to express yourself which i feel like is like a hilariously feminist and jewish thing to say but um like music is nonverbal communication you know and so like having a way to express feeling non-verbally and be able to like in some way be like externalizing an experience and the fact that other people could receive that experience or, and be moved by it or touched by it was like totally life-saving you know um yeah my first introduction to the Shonda's um, music was uh, the documentary um, that uh, Madsen and was it Madsen and Simon? Simon, yeah. Yeah, did uh, what was it called? Do you remember? Oh God, uh, Riot Acts. Riot Acts, yes. Uh, which um, spotlighted a number of uh, trans musicians and gender musicians. Um, uh, I was just blown away by like the force of your music, um, you know, in the few clips that were in the documentary. And so then I um, sought out your music live, and just, uh, just you know, um, uh, you all are such amazing performers. Um, but you. what I want to get around to is uh, the issue of. Um, a transness within the music world do you feel how do you feel like that has um, impacted your career as a musician if at all I mean I think that um, you know there there are lots of awesome queer and trans music, musicians out there um, and I do feel a sense of community in certain ways um, and uh, a couple years ago, um, we 
had the chance to open for Against Me um, on their first tour since uh, Laura Jane came out, um, which was such an honor. Um, and I remember um, she, one of the songs, um, she says, um, does God bless your transsexual heart, true trans soul rebel? And, but having the, I didn't have the record yet. And so to hear it, I couldn't, I couldn't hear the does. So I didn't hear it as a question. So I heard, um, God bless your transsexual heart. Oh, that's actually what I hear all the time. I right. didn't know there was It's a question. Does, does yeah. God bless oh. your transsexual heart? Oh. So they were, um, the band, uh, against me, they like, understandably were like, I think really didn't know what to expect. Um, they had, through their, like, the bands that they had opened with and through some of their more mainstream exposure, like, a lot of their, certainly not all, but a lot of their audience was, like, very bro-y. Um, and I think they just really didn't know how people were going to react um, in a live setting. Obviously, like, she had come out in, you know, and done interviews and, like, written with people and there was like online response but like how are people gonna what's gonna happen when we show up and play a show like you know and all of the material for that record was so about her trans experience and um so i know that she really wanted um like trans musicians and and female musicians to like be a part of that and especially for that first tour and so i remember on one of the first nights of the tour where we were watching their set from backstage. Um, so we're seeing the audience, you know, like we're seeing Against Me's backs and the audience's faces. So it was like this very special view of what was happening in this like moment that felt so huge, like as a trans person and as a musician to watch this person who was like the most mainstream that I was aware of, like out trans person doing this thing and um I was and so what I saw was like a thousand two thousand people all just adoring her and being her fans and all singing along god bless your transsexual heart true trans soul rebel like passionately singing it along it like gives me chills just to say it right now and so I was standing next to my friend Emily and like we were watching this together and we just looked at each other and we're like, oh my God, we've won. Like this is like not in a, you know, like there's so much left to do, like not like not in that way, but just a like, if this can happen, then like we are like riding the tide of change. Like there's no going back. Like there are a thousand frat boys singing God bless your transsexual heart, true trans soul rebel, like fuck. You know, um, and yeah, I will just, I, I will never forget that moment and that sort of extended moment of being on that tour for a month and, and just feeling like, yeah, like we got this. And like artists and our artists change things in ways that other people can't, you know, like not, it's not more valuable, it's not better, but like we all have our roles to play and like all you can do is like give the thing that you have to give and like when artists do that 
it just touches people in a particular way and um, if you'll like allow me to nerd out for like one second one you know like obviously I value all art forms but as a musician one of the things that I find the most remarkable about music um, is that uh, my, my uncle who teaches um, anatomy and physiology once told me that we don't actually have five senses, we have four senses, um, because what defines a sense is that there's a specific part of your body with a, a specific receptor that is unique, that only does one thing. So the receptors in your eyes that are able to trans receive and transform light into images in your brain are unique. There's no other part of your body that does that. Um, your sense of smell is able to receive particles and gases and change them into information. And he was saying the sense that we call a sense that isn't really is hearing because the sensors are not unique. What they are are the same sensors as touch. So what's actually happening when you hear is that the physical force of a vibration is, is physically touching your inner ear. And so he was saying the sense of hearing and the sense of touch are the same. And I'm not, I do not teach anatomy and physiology, so if someone wants to totally debunk this and argue with me, that's fine. It doesn't have to be, I don't care, basically is what I'm saying. That is my experience of music, is that it is like being physically touched. And so it alters you in a way that for me, looking at a photograph or reading a poem doesn't do. It's just those things affect me emotionally and music affects me physically and viscerally and that's why I think live music is so important is because like you are you're literally being touched by the volume the the, the like the sound waves of live music and to be in a group of people who are all being touched by the same thing at the same time like that's why people have crazy like spiritual experiences at giant shows you know, um, and that's what it feels like to me, both as an audience member and as a performer, is like this enormous exchange of energy of like literally physically touching each other. And that's why when you hear music that you hate, like people are so intense about it. Like I fucking hate that band, you know, like because it's like it's like someone's touching you in a way that you don't want to be touched. You know, it's like when someone fucking hugs you and you're like, ah, why are you touching me? I didn't give you permission to like touch my body. It's violating, you know? So in the same way, being touched in a way that you need to be touched is healing and is transcendent and is all of those things. So that is like my like biological nerd out about <laughs> what music <laughs> means to me. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, uh, how are you doing? Do you have energy to keep going? Sure. Okay, great, great. Uh, I wanted to get back to healthcare and talk um, more comprehensively about your experiences. Um, so I definitely want to talk about your experience with um, breast cancer and um, mental health. Um, but I'm also interested in hearing um, uh about what your experiences were like um, uh, accessing trans-related healthcare um, in the early 2000s. Um, it's, it's, things have changed considerably. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I think I was really lucky. Like, I got my first trans care from the Calmore Community Health Center, which is such a New York institution, and it's it's flawed and it's busy and it's not perfect and people complain about it all the time, but it's also like such an incredibly valuable um, institution. And I was um, I so I first got my care there through their HOP program, the Health Outreach to Teens, um, like youth program, uh, because I was under 21. Uh, and it was just, like, so positive. Like, people were so kind and, like, explaining things. And, like, I had this nurse practitioner who just, like, took so much time with me, you know, like, who every time I would, like, you know, because I would have to come in for my shots, like, for a period of time before they trained me to do self-injection, um, and she would just, like, talk to me, you know, and ask me how I was, and be with me for, like, an hour sometimes, you know, which is unheard of in, like, medical care, so I, like, I'm just so grateful, and had such positive experiences with healthcare providers there, um, and their administrative staff, like, it was just really, um, I feel really, really grateful for that. Um, yeah, I, I do, like, I know that protocols have changed, and I think that's good, and, you know, things are, hopefully, I know that there's people who are working really hard within, um, medical system to, uh, to make changes. I feel like a couple years ago, like, half of the queer world decided to become nurses and librarians, you know, and, and like, totally totally all for that um so there are lots of people you know like who are really working to to continue to make change on on the inside on those fronts we love you (laughs) (laughs) um okay yeah so you mentioned um a little bit about um uh your treatments um breast cancer related uh treatments um and, uh, you know, having to navigate that whole thing, um, and, uh, the gender politics of that, um, tell us more about that. Um, yeah, it, um, definitely that is, like, one of the defining, like, moments of my life you know on in so many ways both in terms of gender stuff in terms of how different I was physically and emotionally on the other side of it um like in terms of mental health in terms of trauma in terms of so many things um but in terms of uh in terms of like being trans and navigating those spaces I mean it was you know, there's certainly the discomfort of being in, like, very, very predominantly female space, um, not just in terms of, like, who's sitting in the waiting room, but also in terms of the, um, all the language, all the pamphlets, all the, every, all the support groups, um, and, God, I went, I, so I got, I got my treatment, I had my surgery at NYU and I had my um, chemo at what was Beth Israel and now is um, St. Vincent's but uh, 
I got a second opinion at um, Sloan Kettering, and I was waiting in the waiting room to see the per- to see the doctor. And their gift shop for their cancer center, uh, for their breast cancer center, it was like in the waiting room and had these like giant, you know, the walls were like glass, you know. So you're sitting in the waiting room looking into the gift shop, and the like main display are these mannequins that are, I can't even believe this is real, wearing, like, like sexy, uh, like, pink ribbon lingerie. So it's, like, you know, like, bra, like, bra and underwear, like, covered in, like, designs of pink ribbons, like, for, you know, breast cancer awareness or whatever. And I'm, like, oh, my God. Like, it just, first of all, I can't imagine that any cis woman who's there either because she might have breast cancer, she does have breast cancer, she did have breast cancer, she may not have breasts anymore, she is getting a regular screening, and that's always just sort of anxious anyway, like, like wants to be looking at, like, breast cancer lingerie, like, uh, like, on a mannequin with, like, giant boobs, like, it was like, I was like, how is this real? But, yeah, I'm just, like, sitting there as this, like, you know, passing trans guy, and I'm just like, oh my god, like, this is so aggressively feminizing, like, not only, like, we're supposed to be, like, we're supposed to be sexy, like, sexy ladies, even when we're fucking dying, like, you fucking patriarchy like I was so mad and I was like oh and I was so great I mean I know that Sloan Kettering is like provides incredible life-saving care or whatever like I'm not trying to diminish that but I was like I am so fucking glad that I'm getting my treatment at Beth Israel because if I had to sit in this waiting room and look at that every time I came in for chemo like I wouldn't make it you know like it's so I was like so repulsed by it um so that's an example um but I, in terms of my actual care, I think the hardest part was just that really, like, with the best of intentions, really just no one knew what to do with me. And, like, none of the normal rules ap- applied to me. Um, they had not had patients before they had One. Okay. One other trans uh, breast cancer survivor who I, I don't know who he was, but, um, yeah, one. Uh, and... So, I mean, like... And can I back you up for yeah, a yeah. sec? Um, had you just had, like, routine um, preventive care um, prior to no, so, discovering it? Oh, you mean just, like, uh, general medical care or preventive cancer uh, screening or something? Oh, yeah, I guess I mean uh, cancer screening. So I was 27. Uh-huh. So, like, you're not supposed to have start having regular, like, mammograms or anything until way after that. Like, it was... Um, like I, I do have some women in my family who had breast cancer, but like way post menopause, which doesn't have anything to do with family history. It has to do with the fact that like forty percent of postmenopausal women—I think it's forty—it's something really high. Forty percent of postmenopausal women get breast cancer. Like it's just super normal. Um, so basically, I was twenty-seven years old with no family history negative for um BRCA which is the like gene that is super common among Ashkenazi Jews um of which I am one um 
that would explain having early onset breast cancer. So like, there's no explanation for why this should have happened to me. Um, and there are there still isn't one. Um, and there are no answers. Uh, so there was no routine anything. Um, I just like felt a lump and sort of was like, um, it was like right, like directly under my nipple. So it was kind of hard to tell because that's like, it was like if it had been just like in one of the more like fleshy parts, it would have been more clear to me. But because it was like under a part that was already sort of harder or lumpier, like it's sort of hard to tell. Um, so it did like take me a while to do anything about it because I was like, is am I imagining this? Like, is this a thing? Like, what could that be? Um, and then I was like, hey, it's getting bigger. Like, this is a thing. Um, and like, so first I went to my primary care doctor, then I like got a sonogram, then I had a thin needle biopsy, then I had a core biopsy, then I, and it was like at every single step along the way, everyone was like, you can't, like, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna check this, but like, this is not possible. Like, you're gonna have a fibroid or something. Like, I don't know, you know, like it just, everyone was like, this is not possible. Um, up until the after the core biopsy and they called and were like okay yeah you have breast cancer like um this is for real so you know there was really no roadmap in terms of my treatment there was they had to ask the question like could your hormones could like testosterone be like the cause of this there's no evidence that it was like just a whole conversation about whether I should go off it. I did go off it for a little while, like in the worst possible way. It was a nightmare. Um, and also in terms of post-care, because it was, uh, my tumor was HER2 positive, which means it was estrogen responsive, breast cancer, estrogen positive. Um, and so like part of the treatment, part of the like long-term post, uh, post-chemo like treatment um, for like a cis woman who had my same cancer would be um, significantly altering the hormonal environment of your body. Um, the idea being we don't know what caused your cancer but we know that the hormonal environment of your body allowed this cancer to come into existence and grow and thrive so we want to change that. Um, so then talking about what I would change if anything in terms of my hormones afterwards was also like there was nothing um like no roadmap for that so it was just like very confusing and you know I think there are still like I see my medical oncologist twice a year and there are still like options that we weigh and talk about and decisions that I make all the time Okay, this is M. Henry Milks um, interviewing Eli Oberman, part two. <laughs> um, okay, so we, we were just talking about your experience with breast cancer um, uh, and um, your relationship to healthcare more generally. Um, what do you feel like are the limitations of, of healthcare for trans people? I mean, what do we need to change? I mean, I guess the first thing that I'll say is not specific to trans people about healthcare, but is just about how passionately I feel about healthcare in general, which is, although it affects trans people too, is that 
we fucking need free universal socialized healthcare and not having it is so barbaric and unimaginable and people not being able to receive care that they need because of money is insane and like makes me so mad um so yeah i would say that one of the biggest barriers to trans people receiving the health care that they need is that we need free universal social health care um and then of course like you know like barriers of institutional racism and classism and ability and all of these other things that are of course intersectional with trans identity and trans people um you know like compound the issues that we have um to receiving the care that we need and to receiving informed care and care that is kind and you know and also when i say informed care i don't mean i mean that they're not informed about like medical providers aren't informed about our bodies and our needs and our care but also being able to inform us like your doctor or your nurse or whatever like they're supposed to know more about your body and your options and your health than you do and they're supposed to tell you about it so that you can make choices so that you can make informed choices and being in the position of trying to explain your body to your healthcare provider is like so bad <laughs> you know like not only is it like transphobic and demoralizing and scary and vulnerable in all of these ways that shouldn't be but it means that like you should never know more about it than they do you know like they're supposed to tell you like hey did you know you're at risk for this like have you screened this have you whatever like do you know you know like they're supposed to tell you shit not the other way around um just from a medical point of view like besides all the like emotional toll of uh, of receiving bad like bad care um or of receiving no care at all because you're too afraid to go in or you don't have the money or whatever um so yeah like having been through a major medical trauma as as a trans person it's just like no one like just no one should ever have to do it like i had I, like i had the most privileged like the like the best thing that our current healthcare system has to offer like i had really good insurance i had a you know really understanding job that i could go to when i felt well enough i have enough of a like like family financial safety net that i knew i would be okay like everything that a person could want i had and it was so fucking horrible you know like if that's like if what i experienced is the best that our system has to offer like which it pretty much was like that is a disgrace and i just like the lack of um but yeah the lack of uh like training about trans health and trans bodies in the general like general medical community that's not about trans specific care like hormone replacement therapy or surgery or, or you know gender affirming surgery that's just about general health care like is so disturbing you know and my experience has been that there are lots of people in those fields who are good people and who are kind people and who will 
treat you well and with compassion and figure out what they need to do for you. Um, and there's a lot of people who aren't too. And, you know, I have been treated so badly as well as so well, you know, in that system. Um, and so, yeah, that like, I just, I feel so strongly about the need for like really in-depth across the boards education and like trans trans competency trainings both with medical providers and like administrative staff it just like it is so hard to even like get us to come in the door you know in some in so many instances that like if you then treat a person badly when they do like you like that person's never coming back you know and like that is one of the reasons why we're such an like medically at risk population um because care is the care of us is both ignorant and hostile and inaccessible so that's like a total recipe for disaster um the other thing that i feel really strongly about um in terms of trans health is about um the all of the there's so much transphobia that is trying to get in the way of us receiving gender affirming care um and options that the people who in in my experience and i know not everyone is like this but the providers that i've had who are like totally on board and supportive and want to get us the care that we like want and need don't ask the difficult questions because or at least they're not asking them in view of patients maybe they're asking them with each other but like because the because to ask them is so rooted in a context of transphobia that it feels detrimental so it's like i'm not hearing my providers asking does testosterone cause cancer like because the people asking those questions are crazy transphobic people who are trying to keep us from getting hormones and you know like so when i was going to have my mastectomy the uh the woman who uh performed the i i had a surgical oncologist and then a plastic surgeon who did the closing up um but the surgical oncologist um who was like an awesome like total new york jewish dyke like awesome person um the first time that I'm not the first time I met with her but the first time I met with her to talk about my surgery after it was clear that I had cancer and was going to have to have it you know I think I just sort of unthinkingly referred to it as top surgery and she was like you're not having top surgery you're having a mastectomy and I was like huh like okay what you know like what are you talking about and um she said I don't I don't do top surgeries. You're not allowed to have one because you have cancer, but even if you were, like, I don't do that. Other people do that, and that's fine, but, like, I'm morally opposed to it. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, the, the end result looks very similar between a mastectomy 
uh, you know, a bilateral mastectomy and top surgery, but the goals are completely different. The goal of a healthy person going to a plastic surgeon and asking for top surgery is aesthetic. And it is to come out with a male appearing chest and there are different versions and ideas of what that might look like, but most of them leave in a significant amount of breast tissue that means that that person is still very much at risk for breast cancer. And they don't know it, they can't be screened, like they can't physically have a mammogram, and they are incredibly unlikely to willingly go and ask for screenings of other kinds or care. So you're creating an extremely at-risk population that's already discriminated against and doesn't know they're an at-risk population for breast cancer. And as a breast cancer surgeon, I cannot live with myself if I do that. What a mastectomy is, is to get out as much breast tissue as is humanly possible. In my case, to keep my cancer from coming back or from a healthy person to keep yourself from getting breast cancer. So, like, my chest doesn't look that much different than many versions of top surgery that I've seen. But, like, so that to me, like, and, like, I've just never forgotten it because I was like, okay, here's a person who is queer, who has done tons of surgeries for trans people, who is, like, a fierce ally of, like, of trans people and their right to have gender-affirming surgeries, who is, like, asking hard medical questions with our health as a, in mind as a priority that I'm not, I, at that point, had not heard a single other person ask. And so I was like, oh my god, like, in order to not be, like, like the only people asking the hard questions are the transphobic people we need our allies to be asking the hard questions about what is the, what do these things really mean for you in terms of your long-term health like yes we want you to have the gender affirming like hormones and surgeries that you need but we need to ask hard questions about it because we care if you live or die you know and like so like I'm not seeing that much of that and it really scares me um and that like you know that's something that I I just feel incredibly strongly about and like that we need to make a trans positive space for questioning all of these things um and similarly like in terms of like research and stuff like if you had asked 20 year old me like do you want to be like tracked and researched by the medical community for the next 50 years like as a trans person with your like health i would have been like that's so fucking creepy get away from me but as a 33 year old i realized that like the medical community studies and researches you when they care if you live or die when they care about your health and the fact that we're not being like we're not being studied, that's actually what's creepy and scary and we're not we're not valuable. We're not valuable socially, we're not valuable financially to anybody, and that's why there's not more research. And my my uh primary care physician at Callan Lord is actually one of the only people who has started to in the last like five years actually track um the healthcare of trans patients um, of all kinds over time, and part of um, part of why that's so important is, for example, when I when I like started testosterone, you know, a million years ago, you know, they were telling you like, 
there are all these studies that show that there's no link between testosterone and breast cancer. And that may be true, and I think it probably is because I think my doctors couldn't find any reason to think that that was what, why you know, I had cancer, and I think that there would be a lot more trans people with breast cancer on testosterone if that were true, and I'm glad it's not. Um, but those studies are coming out of places like the Netherlands that have completely different and much stricter trans protocols. So for example, you can't start testosterone unless you've had a mastectomy and a full hysterectomy. So of course those people aren't getting breast cancer or uterine cancer because they don't have uteruses or breasts. You know, so it's like to then compare that to a US population that is incredibly more various in terms of what like hormones or surgeries or identities people choose to adopt or not, like there need to be studies in the US like that are actually tracking these things and so that's like just starting to happen in the last in the last five years or so and so yeah I think that that's really 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 important we need studies and we need research and like we need to like rest those questions from the control of like transphobic medical industrial complex and like be asking those questions of ourselves in like a deeply loving and transpositive way that is what I have to say about that do you feel feel that there are similar issues um, at play in the arena of mental health mental wellness yeah I think it's a lot of the same issues like the fact that you need to like have a letter from a psychiatrist like to have surgery or start hormones like you know like I was terrified to do my like psych evaluation like I have a huge family history of mental illness you know and there were people being like if they ask you if like you know there are like five people in my family have committed suicide like and you know it, it's like people were like they're just gonna ask you all this stuff just say no like just you know like you can't let them know that you have a family history of mental illness or whatever. And so it's like, again, these questions are when they're coming from a place of trying to pathologize trans identity in and of itself, and when they are questions that are being put between you and the care that you need, that's not a space to actually, like, in a nurturing and positive way, deal with a mental health issue that a person might have and so I think it feels incredibly unsafe for a lot of trans people to talk about mental health issues that they're having um, because our, like it's already like we're all already pathologized you know like our existence is already a mental illness and so to admit that you have like other mental health concerns is just feels like an incredible risk and both materially and in terms of being like am I fucking trans because I'm crazy like am I depressed because I'm trans am I trans because I was sexually abused as a child like am like all of these things that are coming at us in the worst possible ways like how do yeah how do we ask those questions of ourselves in a loving way to get the care that we need and um you know I like certain like I've struggled with 
severe depression my entire life and um the like that's just hard enough for anybody but then like feeling like is that tied to my identity is that tied to transness is so uncomfortable and terrifying and i think that i like i now and it's partly related to related to the you know my experience with cancer is like i'd been living like this for so long and i just didn't know any other way and you know it's this bizarre feeling and actually there's this um there's this awesome film about our wonderful trans queer elder Kate Bornstein um, called uh, Kate Bornstein is a Queer and Pleasant Danger. Um, and she talks about her experience with, with lung cancer, but like, uh, and it connected to mental health. And there's this scene in it when she, um, when she says like, I can't, like, I don't remember her exact words, but basically she says like, it is so surreal to have been suicidal my entire life and then find myself like, fighting for my life and like why am I fighting for my life when all I've ever wanted to do is die you know and it's like this bizarre experience but that was like and like when I saw this scene of her talking about this like I just started bawling because I was like oh my god that's exactly right like I just fought like a fucking fierce wild beast to like stay alive even though all I've ever wanted to do is kill myself and then I like come out on the other side and my quality of life is so bad both in terms of recovering from like cancer care and because of my depression which obviously has just got so much worse from having just been through a trauma and I'm sitting there being like like I just fought so hard for my life but my quality of life is so bad like it has got to be better than this you know and so that actually was a huge like motivating factor for me like to start getting the mental health care that I needed and I'd been so like opposed to antidepressants for so long and I finally was like I just like have to do something and I like found a psychiatrist that really helped me and I also have like a therapist who I talk to who I adore but um I was like I've got to try drugs like this is just not like I've been like working on myself for like almost 30 years and like I work really hard and like I'm self-aware and you know, to the best of my ability, and, like, I still am suicidal all the time, like, there, I just need to try something else, and, um, you know, I tried, like, a million different things, and it was really hard, and then I found something that worked for me, and, like, it totally changed my life, and, um, you know, I'm, like, happier and more stable than I've ever been, and it really did, like, I, it needed, like, that, the motivation of being, like, what like is this what I just went through that for like is this what I just fought for like is this what I just went through like excruciating pain and trauma to feel like this this is my life like fuck that you know um so it like for me it took like almost dying five times to get me to like actually get the mental health care that I needed you know like so that's pretty extreme I think you know and I would you know I know everyone's different and like, hopefully there are people out there who are, like, smarter and less stubborn than me who, like, it doesn't take the path for them to get the care that they need, but I'm sure that I'm not the only one, too, you know, and I really don't want people to have to have cancer to figure it out. Um, so, yeah, I just, like, it's just, there's so much in, there are so many barriers, there's so much in the way of us 
asking the questions that we need to ask of ourselves and each other and our providers and our communities um, and our families and our chosen families like and I think we need to make a yeah we just really need to make a place to ask ourselves are the big we um, those questions and not let those questions just be in the be the purview of people who don't give a shit about us Oh, yeah. Okay, last uh, couple of questions. Um, and then we'll close our conversation. Um, so you've lived in New York for how long? 17 years. 17 years. How long has that been in uh, I've been here for the last three or four, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And where were you before that? Before that, I was in Prospect Heights. I was there for a long time, and I before that, I was in Williamsburg. Oh, okay. Um, I just moved here. I didn't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what uh, What led you to move here? Um, so Louisa uh, was um, was thinking about moving here, and um, she just has always loved it down here and it's like one of our favorite places and we would come here together all the time and she was uh she was worried about being down here and would anyone ever like actually come down here and which was she self-isolating and she was like would you ever think about moving down here you know and i was, and i was like well actually yeah that sounds like a great idea so she moved down here first and i came like six months maybe even less than that later um but, I mean, certainly being, like, near her is a big part of my life, um, just in terms of, like, her being my chosen family um, and also the band. But, I so I came down here, I, you know, I'd never considered it in, like, like many things in my life. Louisa Solomon considered it first, and then I realized it was a really good idea. Um, so I came down here with her to look at a couple apartments with her, and we would, like, look at something and then like walk on the boardwalk and um you know like we talked about me being from Virginia and the mountains and you know I grew up actually I say Charlottesville but for the first like number of years it was outside of Charlottesville and Albemarle County um which is was at the time just like pure country like so beautiful just farms and farms and fields and fields and fields and mountains um and as a little kid, like, that was, like, nature was such a place of solace for me, and it was a place of safety and creativity and, like, wonder and awe, and, like, I would just, like, my parents were super not protective about just letting me wander around, and so I would just spend all day, like, exploring a mountain by myself and, you know, like, learning about plants and moss, and, like, it was just such a big part of me na feeling nature and when I first moved here I had a really 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 hard time adjusting to the city and I was like I know that the culture that I want is here I know that the people I want are here I know that there are queers here I know that there are Jews here I know that there's like radical politics happening here like I can't I don't know where else I would possibly go but like the sheer like separation from nature was spiritually devastating and like just all of the 
metal and concrete and like can't see more than you know 90 feet in front of your face like literally no horizon no no literally no perspective you know and like everyone's so closed and like caught up and all this stuff and I was like so you know I did eventually decide to stay here but that was like the and I adjusted obviously but that was like the one thing that was just still like am I gonna live the rest of my life like in this totally artificial environment where I can't like put my hands in the dirt and um so it never in a million years occurred to me to live here but then when I did think about it because of Louisa and I was down here and I was just looking at the ocean and I was like oh my god we do have nature in New York City it's called the fucking Atlantic Ocean <laughs> like no one thinks about us being a like coast city because Manhattan you know but like so I I was like this is a total game changer like this is the one thing that I was missing and I like see the ocean every single day and can see like have perspective and have a horizon and can see farther than I can see and look out into nature and space and nothingness and hear the waves and it's beautiful and I'm not gentrifying anyone and um I think the the Russians are doing just fine and um yeah, so I was just like, oh, this was like the missing piece. This just like totally made my life complete. And um, I think any other place in the world that I can think of that is a major city on the ocean, like oceanfront property is not in any way affordable to, you know, queer musicians, for example. Um, but here, because everything is measured by how close it is to Manhattan, I like think this is just like the one place in the entire world where I could live in a major city and live on the beach. And so basically I live in Russia and also I live I live in Russia on the ocean, little little Odessa by the sea and also I happen to be a half hour train ride from Manhattan. So I I win. <laughs> I win at life. <laughs> um is there anything else that you would like to share or mention that we haven't gotten to? I probably couldn't stand to talk about myself for any longer, um, but I'm just really grateful that you and everyone else working on this project are doing this, and I think it's really great and, and very honored to be a part of it. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing your time your experience and your perspective on all of these things. Um, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. You too.